going to be reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 22. And this is a passage that uh, is relevant to those like David who are incredibly wealthy. And if you know David's life, those like the early David who had nothing. Uh, it is uh, relevant to those whose families are utterly messed up like David's family was. And it's relevant to people who have no families. So we're going to be saying this passage is relevant to all of us. I'm going to be dealing with every verse, uh, 1 through 19. But let me, for now, just read verses 5 through 11. Hear the word of God. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father." And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you. May you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and it covers every aspect of our lives. We hold nothing back. We want your lordship, Father, to be exalted uh, over our finances, over our thinking, over our emotions, over our bodies, over our houses. Uh, Father, we want you to be all in all. And so I pray that as we interact with your word, continuing to worship, that you would receive the thoughts and meditations of our uh, hearts and uh, make them by your spirit acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as most of you know, my parents were missionaries in Ethiopia for some 30 years, and one of the things that I very, very much respected about my uh, father and had a huge impact upon me was the way in which he prepared the leaders that he was training in Ethiopia to prepare more leaders and to prepare more leaders and to pass on the things that he had given to succeeding generations, what I call building a legacy. A legacy is something that is handed down that remains from a previous generation. Now he wasn't perfectly consistent in that. I don't think any of us are. And uh, David himself was not consistent. Uh, and I think uh, that is pretty clear. He had a lot of messed up things in his families. And there are a number of ways in which I wish that I had better invested in my children. Looking back, you know, hindsight's always better than foresight, isn't it? It tends to be 2020. But in this passage, I see a number of ways that King David prepared a legacy for the next generation that parallels what my parents did. And one of the word pictures that struck in my mind from the time I was a very little child was my dad planting trees that he would never enjoy the shade of, but succeeding generations would. He planted trees he knew he would never eat the fruit from, but he knew he was blessing uh, succeeding uh, generations. And uh, some people wondered, and they even asked my dad, why in the world would you plant these trees? You know you're not going to be here but another year. Why would you do this? It's not going to benefit you at all. But anybody who has had a God-implanted desire to pass on a legacy, no, that's a ridiculous question. We're not doing it for ourselves. We've got this desire to invest in God's kingdom, this desire to have our lives count uh, for generations to come. 
And um, you realize it's not about us, it's about God's kingdom. Now, by the way, I don't want any of you singles to blow off this sermon thinking, okay, he's preaching so much about the family. Well, the family is a big part of God's kingdom, but there are ways in which you can invest, pass on a legacy uh, to the future. And as we go through these various points, I think you're going to be seeing some of the encouraging ways that you can do so yourself. One of the books that Jason Diffner mentioned in the conference yesterday by Hughes, I think documents some of what I'm going to be talking about today uh, very well. Uh, those who have had the biggest impact upon society for the long term have had what he calls a seventh generation vision. And I think too many of us only have a vision that goes to getting our kids well married. And we're, we think, okay, we're done. <laughs> That's the end of it. In any case, my mom and dad passed on a legacy to the Ethiopians in many ways. And for you singles, keep this in mind. Uh, they were passing on a legacy outside of their family. Okay, my mom taught grade school and high school teachers in a way where they would teach other teachers who would teach other uh, teachers. Uh, when they arrived in Ethiopia there, the literacy, illiteracy rate was like 100%. We lived way down country, in fact, in tribes that uh, the government uh, knew very little about. So these people could not homeschool at least the subjects of reading, writing, arithmetic. By the way, everybody homeschools, whether they like it or not. From the time that baby is born, you are training them in something good or bad. But there were th subjects they could not uh, homeschool them in. It was impossible. And so uh, what my parents did is uh, they would train these teachers how to train other teachers, how to train other teachers. It was a multiplication effort so that when people were able to homeschool, then they would have their neighbors saying, please, can we join your homeschool? Can we learn how to do this? And now, a little over 60 years later, the literacy rate is close to 100% in the areas where they worked. My mom would teach illiterate women about the Bible in a way that would enable them to teach their daughters to teach their daughters, and that is what Titus 2 is all about. Some people interpret Titus 2 as if it's a massive program uh, where it's an ongoing women teaching women kind of a program. That's not what it is about at all. What it was about was mature women who were catching brand new Christian women up to speed who had never had any legacy passed on to them. They're brand new in the faith. So it's mature women teaching these women how to teach their daughters to teach their daughters within the context of the family. So that's what my uh, mom was involved in. It was a very decentralized uh, kind of uh, training, much like we do in this church. And through the principle of synergy, it took off. And they did it that way because they knew it would give the most lasting uh, legacy. So when communism took over Ethiopia... The communists could not stamp out all of the Bible training uh, seminaries that my dad, you can call them loosely seminaries, that my dad had established because they couldn't even find them. <laughs> they were just scattered everywhere. Everybody was doing this, whereas the centralized Bible schools that the other missionaries had set up were closed down overnight because they were centralized. They were able to be, uh, they were able to be found. And the same was true of the schools. They were trying to shut down the schools and put communist schools in place, but the schools that my parents had established were multiplying by, like rabbits, you know, in the homes and the churches and everywhere throughout the countryside. And it shows the two Christian tribes that my parents ministered to for the longest period of time, the combatants and the Hadeans, uh, the two together are more than 95%. Uh, I just got a report the other week, and it's hard for me to believe, but they said it's more than 98%. But anyway, I know for sure, even by government records, it's more than 95% solid evangelical Christians uh, who are, again, passing on this same legacy. Now, just to compare those two tribes where my dad and my mom were using this kind of an approach let's say 95% to be on the conservative side. The rest of Ethiopia, where the other approaches were, 2%. 2%. It's, it's quite a stark contrast, even though there has been missions uh, in both all of those tribes for the same length of time. And I find it interesting that they even imitated my father in his long-term approach to taking dominion over the earth. For example, 
They watched the way that my dad planted trees. So they did not strip the ground bare by cutting down all of the wood because, hey, we need firewood right now. This is what happened in Ethiopia. Towns would have to eventually move to another location because there was no more wood to be had, right? So um, they, in fact, unfortunately, some of the missionaries had this kind of a short-term perspective. I remember this one missionary who was only there for six months and he cut down all of the trees on that station because he came from Australia, a place uh, where there were no trees, and he just didn't like the sight of trees getting in the way of his view. This was what turned that station into an oasis that everybody adored. He cut it all down, something that had been planted over generations. But this is the present-oriented, one generation, and in this case, uh, one-year <laughs> approach to life that so many people t uh, take. But anyway, these um, uh, combatants and Hadians followed my dad's long-term approach, and their reforestation projects were the first reforestation projects in the nation, and they became a model for the nation for decades to come. In fact, their industry made the communists just leave them alone, and uh, they tried initially to control them, and they said, no, we're, we're doing church we're gonna they tried to have their communist meetings on sunday mornings they said no we're gonna have this but they were so productive and such a model they were eventually left alone their farming their fishing ponds teaching raising leaders all of this showed that they wanted to pass on a legacy they were not in this just about themselves now here's the point one of the absolutely critical characteristics of people who want to pass along a legacy is a willingness to metaphorically plant trees that you will never eat the fruit from. How effective are we in doing this? Are we even doing it? It's what we want to look at this morning as we finish off the conference weekend on covenant succession. Now, obviously, the main focus is on families, but the principle goes way beyond that. Now, when you look at David's life as a whole, you see that he passed on a legacy of both positive things and negative things. You look at his polygamy. That was a legacy that he passed on, and every descendant of David all the way up to the exile imitated David on this negative legacy. Polygamy did not end until the exile when they finally got it, and monogamy held took hold, and there was monogamy for the remainder of, uh, of those generations. So there was a negative legacy but he also passed on a legacy that was so positive that all of the kings after david were compared to david why because david was so loyal to the lord had such devotion to the lord heroism sacrifice many other virtues now most people remember david because of his fight with goliath i mean that stands out it's just a heart gripping uh, story but if you, were asked, if you were to ask David, what's the one thing in your life that you want to be remembered for? He would say, I want to be remembered for building a great temple to the Lord God Almighty so that God's fame and his honor are lifted up in all of the earth. Now, he wasn't able to do it himself. God said, nope, that's going to be for your son. But he did everything in his power to pass on what would be necessary for Solomon to be able to do this. So I think it's a beautiful passage in which to look at 12 principles that are absolutely essential if we're going to be effective in passing on a legacy. The first essential to legacy building is that you need to be able to see what others cannot yet see. Now, in the previous chapter of 1 Chronicles, David had brought, bought the threshing floor from Arauna the Jebusite. He had two names, but uh, even though the threshing floor that he came to was littered with wheat and chaff and manure and dirt, he saw potential in that. Take a look at verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of Jehovah God. And this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Anybody's looking on through, what's he talking about? All we see here is dirt and manure and <laughs> dust and chaff. Uh, but David had a vision for what could be done with that little piece of property. Verse 1 was a statement of faith 
of what he could see on this spot. And seeing it by faith enabled every other aspect of legacy building that we're going to be looking at this morning. We will never attempt to achieve what we cannot see with our mind's eye. That's where you've got to start legacy building. You need to have a God-given dream or vision of what you want to see in the future. And I emphasize God-given dream because we don't want to pass on a selfish legacy. We do not want to pass on a humanistic legacy. This has got to be a sense God is calling me. He's calling our descendants to accomplish something uh, in this life. And I would encourage you to review the material from the conference with your children to help them catch a vision for the future. The second and third things needed are planning and preparation. And verses 2 through 5 show both. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints and bronze in abundance beyond measure and cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. Now David said, Solomon my son is young and inexperienced and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for him. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Now, every one of those actions requires discussions, planning, and various forms of preparation uh, for what's going to be accomplished. And I love the way that the Duff family has um, been doing these kinds of discussions. They are casting a multi-generational vision of what can be accomplished through their clan. So yes, they're talking about financial issues and about potential obstacles and what specific tools and vehicles that will be needed to accomplish their vision. Legacies don't normally get passed on from generation to generation without concrete plans and actions long before others can see what you are hoping for. In fact, I can guarantee you, this is the stage when you're going to get the most criticism. When people think, you're so idealistic, come on, you're wasting your time, get on with life. This is when people will try to kill your vision. Maybe not deliberately, although some people will because they, they're well-meaning. They think this is ridiculous. You're is pie in the sky. You need to get real, uh, Gary Duff. You need to get real. And uh, it's very important that you not allow them to kill your faith, that you not listen to them. Now, do listen to God because God may adjust. He may trash your plans and give you other plans. So we do listen to God. He is the one that we're serving after all. It's not about us. But um, uh, the point is that you need to be involved in plans and concrete, detailed actions before anybody else can see much more than manure, dirt, chaff that is on the threshing floor. And by the way, most of us in this church don't have a lot of resources, so I think we can appreciate this uh, dirty threshing floor. I mean, we're all starting at ground zero, most of us, right? Uh, But we're aggressively planning for the future. Now, those same verses not only speak about planning and preparation, they obviously speak about laying up and passing on to the next generation some resources and tools that can assist them in achieving that goal. So this is point number three. Building a legacy requires passing on resources and tools. And don't only think about money. There are so many other tools and resources that can be passed on. From the time that my kids were very, very young, we encouraged them to buy tools, good tools. Um, They had money that they earned. They had allowance money. And... Uh, sometimes, you know, our kids would say, Dad, I want to go to the candy store and buy some candy. And we say, sure, you can, because there is money that's allocated. Sure, we can buy some candy, but why don't we drop by the hardware store first and just look around for a bit. And uh, more often than not, when they're in the hardware store, they saw a cool tool that was just perfect for what they wanted to accomplish, and they came out of that store without tooth rotting candy. They came out with a tool in their hand. Not that I'm opposed to candy, okay? We, our kids ate candy. Uh, not a problem. They don't have rotten teeth, so I guess <laughs> it's not totally tooth rotting. 
But uh, the point is we wanted them to begin to get this idea of connecting tools with dominion and begin to use those tools in creative ways. Now, our apple tree in the backyard suffered horribly because they were building this uh, magnificent uh, treehouse and when parts would break off, they would uh, realize, okay, we got to go back to square one. By the time they were finished building this multi-layered treehouse with porches all around it, that tree was toast. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was in an awful shape. But it set patterns of thinking in place that I think were good. Now, I'll hasten to say that tools and resources can come in all shapes and sizes. I tried to encourage our boys to learn multiple skills. Carpentry, plumbing, building, gardening, etc. Kathy did the same with the girls. Sewing, cooking, administration, canning, teaching skills, how to use the computer, how to research. I mean, you never know how those skills may come in handy in the future. Now, books can be great tools if you are very selective in which books you use. I would say the majority of books are an utter waste of time. You're not, they're going to steal, they're going to rob from your dominion time. But good strategically selected books can be tremendous tools for the future. And don't just think in terms of theological books, just because I like theology. No, there's all kinds of books. I remember Larry Nolte showing me one time a little book that he always carried a pocketbook. Do you remember his little pocketbook that told handymen everything they needed to know about cement and metallurgy and what temperatures to have on this and that and distances? And you could get to it far more conveniently. I mean, you could just flip right to the spot much more quickly than you could do getting on your phone and going onto the internet and searching. It was an incredible tool. So books can be tools. There's other things that can be tools that you pass on to your kids, such as skills, connections with key people that you put your kids into contact with, um, internships, apprenticeships, conferences, lectures, worldview, computers, phones, software. So you may not have the skills needed to accomplish your entire vision, but we live in a day and age when you can learn from the internet, you can uh, utilize uh, tools from others. In fact, I'm going to be giving you some ideas on how uh, various families can share with each other and multiply the effect of all of the tools within the church. I'll, I'll give some examples of how to do that later on. But don't ever underestimate the value of tools. They leverage our skills, our limited skills in time and strength. The fourth principle is that building a legacy requires a synergy of skills and a network of experience that is multi-generational. And the very definition of legacy implies that one person cannot do it. No one person has all of the skills, abilities, and experiences that are required. I want you to look at the first part of verse 5. This explains why David is helping. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. Now this is going to be Solomon's temple, but David is the one who has the experience. Uh, likewise, Solomon does not have the friendship. He does not have the connections with artisans and masters, uh, shipmasters and kings and all of the other networks that David has built up over a lifetime with trial and error. And so he needs his dad's experience. He needs the networking that his dad has accomplished. This is, again, a, a kind of a division of labor and specialization. He has some specialties that his son does not have. But the reverse is also true. David will need Solomon's unique giftings and talents. But it is only because Solomon could stand on David's shoulders that he was able to go so far. So both generations needed each other, and it's clear from the chapter as a whole, both needed the input and the expertise of people outside of their family. Those people were passing on a legacy outside their clan. So this is not about buying a thousand acres and trying to live off the land all by your lonesome. That is not taking advantage of the leverage of division of labor and specialization. Now, I've got a number of friends who have this kind of nostalgia. They just want to escape from all of life. That is the exact opposite of legacy building. Now, there is some legacy you're going to be passing on within that small circle, but it's not the kind of leverage legacy that the Scripture talks about. 
Legacy Building appreciates the skills, experience, technologies, and all of the other things that have accumulated over the generations. There's no way that one clan all by itself could produce, you know, technology like this or many of the other technologies we just take for granted. We are benefiting from generations of other people working together. Now, it doesn't stop there. It's critical that the extended family itself networks with each other to help true legacy building to happen rather than reinventing the wheel every generation. If you don't know how to instill the seven-generation perspective, you will never produce a dynasty that will have an impact. So even the clan needs to be networked. By the way, this is not just true for believers. Uh, you read the books on, uh, on dynasties, you'll see that all of the European and American dynasties that have had such a huge impact upon culture for good and for bad had this characteristic. They built upon and utilized the network of skills and experience that was found in family, friends, and other networks. And I think it is just so sad that American families have become so individualistic and so focused on the nuclear family that even the nuclear family has become fragmented. Um, I recently read uh, Robert Fugate's book on patriarchy, and even though I, I don't agree with everything that's in the book, he did a phenomenal job of showing how out of touch American Christians are with what the Bible says about the extended family. It's just phenomenal how much material is in there. And as a result, we American Christians are losing the leverage of generational experience and skill for legacy building. And I think that what's happened is that there's been hyper-patriarchy and abuse over here, and there's been such an overreaction that we're going over into the fragmented individualistic approach to life, which is far more dangerous, far more disastrous than hyper-patriarchy ever has been. But we tend to have these pendulum swings uh, in life. Even the book of Revelation talks about clans and tribes as distinct groups in the New Testament. Well, you can't have tribes and clans without the principle of networking. It just does not happen. You've got splintered families. A clan, by definition, is going to be networked. So we're not talking about one person controlling everybody else's life. We're talking about leveraging the power of networks, networks within the extended family and outside of the extended family. If the only time that you have extended family reunions is once a year, then this is just theoretical concept for you. It's not really something that you are, you are living out. Now, obviously, we consider the nuclear family to be core, uh, to be very important, but so is the networking of cousins thrice removed. Do you even know who your cousins thrice removed are? Now, granted, they may be so off the reservation they would hinder your legacy building rather than helping. Okay, so you're starting from ground zero, granted. But hopefully, five generations from now, that is going to be true of your family. You're going to have invested in such a way that Cousins thrice removed are going to be getting together and sharing their networking advice and their skills, and you're going to be having a positive impact in advancing the kingdom of Christ uh, here on earth. Now, we can compensate to some degree with church networks, but it's not quite the same thing. I'm going to be talking a little bit about how to use the church, especially in the early stages, to compensate for this loss that we have in our society. Um, the elders have been hoping that Jason Diffner's conference has uh, inspired you to at least begin to start thinking differently, but hopefully acting differently as well. I've learned some of these principles rather late in life. I wish I'd known a lot of these principles 20, 40, 60, well, I would have been pretty young at 60 years ago, but I, I really did. But that's okay. You start where you're at. You do not get discouraged over the past. You just start where you're at. Uh, the principle in this uh, chapter really cannot be ignored if we're to succeed in achieving the burden to pass on a legacy, and they certainly are critical if we're going to be, uh, any of us are going to become a culture-impacting dynasty. Okay, this automatically requires a degree of humility in each generation. This is the next point. Building a legacy requires humility. Pride makes people want to go off and do their own thing. You know, Solomon could have said, you know, Dad, that's, that's a great vision for you, but 
I've got other things that are on my frying pan. I really want to be involved in something else. And David could have thought, you know, Solomon's so inexperienced. I'm going to do this much better than he will. I've been thinking about this for decades. I'm going to do this. The temple's going to be named after me. But because they were both listening to God, they put their pride and their own agendas to death, and they sought to achieve this God-given goal that was far, far bigger than them both. And true biblically defined legacy must be bigger than each of us precisely because it is God-defined, God-driven, God-glorifying. It's the God-sized thing that requires His blessing and um, His uh, grace to achieve. And verses 6 through 10, if you look at them there, I think illustrates this humility to put the kingdom advancing goal above their own agendas. Let me just pause before I read those verses and say, until Christ's statement that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, until that grips our hearts, it becomes central to our passion, uh, we're, we're going to be, tend to be prideful in the legacy that we pass on. We're going to tend to be clutching, holding on to things. Uh, it, it's not going to be, in fact, uh, like Jason said the other day, it's just going to wither on the vine. Uh, this is important. Several of these points are so important. So he's put us here on earth to build his kingdom, and building a legacy can be a part of that. Anyway, take a look at um, verses 6 through 10. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. So he wished he could do it. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house from my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give him peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now there's so much of the gospel and, and picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future that's involved in this that we could preach a whole other sermon on how this foreshadows the, the, the kingdom of Christ. But we're looking at even in his own day, what was going on, how was he advancing the kingdom? I think you can see that it takes humility to do what David was doing. While David contributed hugely to this project, he could not take all of the credit. In fact, God kept him from doing what his heart really wanted to do. And I think that can be extremely hard for parents to take. To see their children achieve what they have not been able to achieve, but they've longed to achieve, and to say, I've been trying to do this for 30 years, and now my son in the first three years has achieved this. That can be hard if you do not have humility, if you do not have a God-centered passion for his kingdom uh, to be exalted. So in the better interests of legacy, David put his own desires for credit aside, and he did this for the Lord. And actually, this relates to some degree to the next point, which is generosity. But let me just make one more comment with regard to humility. Some of you may have seen the, uh, the picture that sometimes circulates of uh, Ronald Reagan sitting at his desk. And there's a plaque that sits on his desk that says this, it is amazing what can be accomplished when it does not matter who receives the credit. First time I saw that, my heart connected with it. I said, yes, that is exactly right. Uh, there is something energizing about people who are passionately engaged in something that's bigger than themselves, that is God-glorifying. They don't care if they get the credit. They are driven to see this great vision being accomplished. There's something energizing for the whole group in something like that. So God will indeed bless us if we are willing to plant fruit trees that we will never eat the fruit from, why? Because we want the kingdom as a whole to benefit from these fruit trees. God will bless it. He guarantees he will bless it. He says, your labors in the Lord are not in vain. He says in Galatians 6 that if we do not grow weary, you will receive a harvest. Now, the next point is that building a legacy requires generosity. Now, we, we have this tendency to focus in on the money, you know, and he was generous with his money. But let's, let's just apply this in totally different areas. 
Just think, for example, of everything that your mother has invested in your lives. Okay, will your mom really get repaid for the average 100,000 plus hours that she has invested in raising you and training you and building a legacy into your life? There is no way you will ever be able to pay your mother back for those 100,000 plus uh, hours. She didn't do that to get repaid back. It, payback doesn't make sense in that case. She did it because she's passing on a legacy and the question is will you use that legacy wisely or will you squander it most people squander a great deal of the hundred thousand plus hours that their mom invested in them they squander it they do not treat it like a valuable legacy now that's getting beyond our point <laughs> but my rabbit trails do I, I think they are important our point here is that we moms and dads need to have that generosity to invest 100,000 plus hours into our kids' lives. We need to willingly, joyfully give that. Why? Because we want God's kingdom to prosper. We want part of us to be invested in a way that it outlasts our lives. It goes beyond us. God has put that right within our hearts. And so just because one pot that you've invested in does not work out, keep investing in other pots. Now, hopefully they're not all crack pots, you know, but you keep investing. That's the way it is. God is sovereign on what is prospered and what is not. Will David ever get repaid for the millions of dollars that he ends up expending on this temple? No, not in that life. He did it for God and because of a burning desire that God put within his heart for something that was much bigger than himself. Now, being driven by a God-sized vision of legacy makes us less motivated by profit and more motivated by impact. It's one of the reasons why I frequently give away my books and my writings, and all of them are available for free download. I've been rebuked quite a number of times for doing this. I remember one lady spent 10 minutes haranguing on me that this was a sin for me to be giving away these books. I don't know if it was sour grapes that her books weren't selling. I don't know. And then she came back and harangued me some more on the next day at this conference. But I would much rather, and this is what I told her, I would much rather have 100,000 free downloads of my material than sell 100 books, which is probably about the most I'm going to sell of my books. You know, maybe 1,000. That would be cool, okay? Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm going to sell a million books, okay? We'll, we'll make a statement of, of faith here. I shouldn't make negative affirmations like that. But I want the impact. To me, it's not as much about the money, and I'm not even saying you shouldn't sell books. For some people's vision, that may be a central part of passing on a legacy. I, I have no argument with that whatsoever. I just know where I am at life, and I want to have an impact for uh, continuing generations. Will I or Josh Duff or Tobias Davis or Joe Dykstra or others, will we ever get repaid for the investments that we have put, for example, into biblical blueprints and into Kaiser commentary? I doubt it. But we're motivated more by impact than we are by profit. We are driven by a desire for a legacy of impacting the world. It's one of the reasons why I am willing to train interns that I don't know. People come and say, Phil, would you please train me? And uh, I train them at great personal sacrifice, and people think, that's crazy, Phil. Why do you do that? It's because I've got this burning desire within me to pass my life on to the next generation. I want something of me to last beyond the grave. And I love the engineering training that Josh Duff has done in the past to our young men, training them in skills they would not be able to get elsewhere. Now, is he going to get paid back on that? Probably not. But those of you who have been trained by Josh, I hope you have the same kind of investment in the kingdom and other people's lives. This is the kind of attitude that is going to guarantee, the kind of generosity that is going to guarantee the Lord's blessing. Now, in contrast, people who have the sign on the back of their recreational vehicle that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance, will probably never have a dynasty because it's not in their DNA. It's not in their bosom. Uh, and they may even have a negative legacy. 
David's generosity was something that would never come back to benefit him in any earthly, tangible way. Yes, he was laying up treasures in heaven, no doubt. But he gave generously with no thought of personal gain. And by the way, this was not tax money. Some people think, well, this is the basis for socialism, you know. We have to have the government uh, funding all of these building projects and things like that. No, this was not tax money. This was his personal money that he gave at great personal sacrifice. He, he did it because he wanted a multi-generational legacy to be passed on. Now, the next principle that I see is that building a legacy requires education. Now, it doesn't have to be formal education, but it does involve education. Now, I've already read verses 6 through 10, but if you look at those again, I think you'll see it scattered throughout. In verse 6, he gives a charge of what God expects of Solomon. That's a kind of education. Um, in verse 7, David educates his son on what his own heart's desires and passions are. Okay, so he shared his vision while Solomon was quite young. In verse 8, David shared with his son his own inadequacies, inabilities, his weaknesses, his failures. One of his weaknesses was that um, he had failed to discipline his children. Another weakness was he had failed to say no to his children and to teach them deferred uh, gratification. But in any case, he shares his failures with Solomon. It's an important part of education for our children to learn from not just our successes, but to learn from our miserable failures. It takes humility to do that. There's an order in all of these things. But this is so important uh, to share these openly with our children. In verse 9, David shared God's revelation about Solomon. So what's he doing? He's casting a vision into his son's life. In verse 9, David shared God's revelation. Oh, I already did that. Verse 10, David was teaching Solomon to be driven by a God-centered perspective, to live life under heaven, not under the sun. But you can see this education continuing under verses 11 through 16. Let's go ahead and, and uh, read those. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and <clears throat> give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God, then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, wood, woodsmen and stonecutters and all types of skillful men for every kind of work. Of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Arise and begin working, and the Lord be with you. By the way, uh, education does not have to be unidirectional, one directional. I've learned so much from my kids on kingdom building. I mean, there was, and, and the Duffs, you know, you're, you guys are sharing with each other, aren't you, constantly? You're learning from each other. It's not unidirectional. There's a synergistic learning. Likewise, education does not have to be only verbal. David modeled to Solomon much of his life. Now, he modeled some bad things. I already mentioned polygamy. And it's amazing how kids pick up more from what we model than what comes out of our lips. But modeling is a big part of that. Uh, in my training, I try to filter everything through four modes of learning. And uh, I label those the spiritual, the relational, the experiential and the instructional. You can see all four of those in this uh, paragraph here. But the point is, legacy building requires education and constant learning over a lifetime. Now, yesterday, Jason mentioned our adult children learning. And we parents, we can never stop learning. I've been trying to learn, and I'm not sure my brain's wrapping around it, but I've been trying to learn about different kinds of trust, different ways of passing on assets without onerous taxa taxation. There's much to learn on legacy building, and some of you have gone to economics conferences. I think that's great. Some of you have been reading books. But we must constantly be learning of better ways 
of improving this passing on of a legacy from one generation to another. Uh, as the government becomes more intrusive and desperate in robbing its citizens, we need to learn new ways of avoiding being robbed or new ways of regrouping after we've been robbed. Uh, constant learning is important. The eighth principle for legacy building is that it requires constant encouragement. This one is huge. In verse 10, David encourages Solomon that through God he can achieve great things. In verse 11, David blesses Solomon and asks the Lord to be with him. You know what? The blessing of a dad upon his children is huge. It is so, so important. It enables there to be an energy, a re-energizing of people in the next generation to continue this uh, legacy building. Uh, when your children know that you want them to prosper, it makes them want to continue to prosper. In verses 12 through 13, David encourages Solomon to keep God's loss, to not make this legacy a humanistic venture, but a lawful venture. Uh, now, knowing how overwhelming a huge legacy can sometimes feel, David also tells him this in verse 13. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. In other words, David was a great cheerleader for Solomon's success. He believed in Solomon and he told him so. And I think we need to be cheerleaders in our adult children's lives. But ultimately, he believed in God, the God who has promised covenant succession if we will be faithful to him. So David's praise was not empty praise. It was not rote. It was not humanistic praise. It was encouragement in the Lord. The ninth principle is that building a legacy requires sacrifice. It does not come easily. Now, the second half of verse 5 shows at great personal sacrifice all of the preparations that David was doing. But I love the way it's described in verse 14. He says, Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord. I have taken much trouble. That's the phrase I want to uh, focus on. I've taken much trouble. The ESV translates that Hebrew phrase with great pains... I have provided for the house of the Lord. JPS has, by denying myself, I have laid aside for the house of the Lord. So the Hebrew is indicating there is sacrifice, personal sacrifice that is being made. Good legacies don't just happen. Now this is one of the reasons why so many people don't bother. <laughs> why would I bother investing this way, passing on a legacy, if it is so much work? Let me quote at length from Paul J. Meyer's book, Unlocking Your Legacy. He said, is it hard to follow God? People have asked me. It depends on your definition of hard. Does following God come with a cost? Absolutely. Are there wants and desires along the way that you give up? All the time. But is it hard to follow Him? The answer is a resounding no. Cost and self-sacrifice do not make something hard. Nobody feels sorry for the athlete who wins an Olympic medal, even though that person paid an incredible price through grueling effort behind the scenes, denying himself or herself certain things, probably for several years, all for one hopeful brief moment of glory. The medal, once attained, minimizes every cost and self-sacrifice. Following God is similar in many respects. There are costs and self-sacrifice to be made, but that does not mean it is hard to follow God. Hard is when you compete, but never win. Invest, but lose everything. Work, but receive nothing for your efforts. And show love, but receive hate in return. When I compare my costs and self-sacrifices with what I have already received and will receive in return, my costs and self-sacrifices are insignificant. And I say amen. The costs and sacrifices of ministry are worth it. The sacrifices of investing in our children is worth it. The sacrifices of trying to build a legacy are worth it. And by the way, if one of your descendants uh, despises his birthright, I would just advise you, don't focus on that descendant. Don't let him rob you of your faith and of your joy. Focus on the people who are the 
legacy lovers. Don't focus on the people who are the legacy haters. Okay, I, I, I really think that's important. Thank God that you have some legacy lovers. But the sacrifices of building a legacy may not seem worth it if you don't have the tenth principle in place, which is a future orientation. I think it's the lack of this principle that has made the majority of Christians in our generation uh, uninterested in passing on a legacy. Legacy building involves investing in the future, as David did in verses 14 through 16, therefore requires a future orientation. Now, a future orientation in a nutshell is a willingness to sac uh, sacrifice something now so that we can have something much greater later. It's not sacrificing something now so we can have exactly the same thing later. I mean, that can be involved. But it's sacrificing something now so that you can enjoy something much greater in the future. <clears throat> Such future orientation will not be developed in our children without careful planning and forethought. For example, simple things like teaching your toddler uh, uh, patience rather than instantly, you know, bowing to their every cry and desire. Uh, don't give them instant gratification. If you teach them patience, it will help to build deferred gratification in spades when they are a teenager. Now, there's many different things you can do uh, to, to develop this. When I was a lot younger, my kids were younger, we, um, they had an allowance, they also earned money, and we had everything divided up into three envelopes. There was immediate spending envelope where they could spend it on anything, candy, whatever. There was a short-term savings account that was uh, for things like they would save up for a wagon or for a bike or something like that. Then there was long-term savings. Now, we wanted them to be able to enjoy life to some degree, so that was the purpose of the middle envelope. Uh, but we wanted them to also make some sacrifices and learn, wow, six months later, I get this incredible thing I would never have been able to afford. Why? Because I've made these sacrifices, that short-term saving. If the only savings envelope that you have is the long-term savings, that's not going to develop future orientation. Discipline, maybe. Uh, but it's not going to develop future orientation. It's when they wait and then receive and find the joy of receiving, and then they wait for another thing, and then they receive and have the joy of that receiving that the future orientation begins to be deeply rooted in their soul. So that was just one way in which we helped them. And by the way, uh, let's say that they're saving up for a shiny new bike and it's just not coming quick enough. We found many times our kids would say, you know what, instead of spending this immediate spending, we're going to put it into the short-term savings and make that bike come quicker. Again, it's teaching many other economic principles that are going on there. Um, there are other things you can do to build this uh, future orientation. Uh, talking with your children about the long-term benefits of exercise, healthy eating, etc., can factor in. But whatever, just study it out. Study out. How do I teach my kids deferred gratification and future orientation? You do not want your kids to have anything like what the welfare organization uh, or a welfare uh, part of society has where they just live from day to day. Uh, you, you'll never have a legacy that way. The 11th principle is that building a legacy requires enlisting the help of others outside of our extended family. Now, too many legacy building books completely ignore this point. Now, it's true that over time, a clan can become big enough that they can do everything themselves. But even David's large family required the use of experts from other families and um, uh, other clans. Look at verses 17 through 19. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. If David hadn't paved the way by bringing peace through war, Solomon would never have been able to build the temple. 
Um, if Solomon had not gotten help from numerous other leaders and followers, he would not have been able to build the temple. Countless people shared their talents to enable Solomon's temple to go up. So don't be discouraged if you cannot achieve your dream in one generation, two generations, three generations. It's okay. What's not okay is not having any dream, you know, not pressing toward any goal. One of the ministries that we had in years past in the church was called Heritage Builders. And this may give you some ideas of how uh, to be involved, even if you have no family. Uh, once a month, the church families would get together on a Saturday morning and they would share their experience. And it was all set up where we would cycle through quite a number of skills over a period of a year or two. One father might be fantastic at small engine repair, and he would bring a small engine like a lawnmower or something like that. And we would get the fathers and the sons learning at the same time. So here's a generation, a father who knows nothing about small engine repair, but he wants his son to learn this. We always insisted the dads had to learn right along with the sons. So they would come to this thing, and as he's tearing apart this machine and putting it back together, he's describing everything that goes into small engine maintenance, small engine repair. So that's one family sharing with a number of other families this particular skill. Then there would be a second person over here. He knows everything about gun maintenance and repair and the safety of handling uh, guns. He shares that. There might be a mom like uh, Mrs. Nolte. Uh, I think she was one of the ones that would teach canning, how to preserve food. Anyway, there was this kind of sharing where there was a multiplication of efforts, and it's astounding how quickly the dads and the sons began carrying this on. Now, we quit it after, I don't even remember how many years we did it, but we did it until there was more, no, no more need. It's sort of like the Titus II mothers. They have to keep teaching the new people who have no experience until they can teach their children to teach their children. But that was the goal of Heritage Builders, was to get new people who had absolutely no skills up to speed with their children so that their children then would be able to pass it on in future generations. Um, so don't be discouraged by your singleness. Um, even in the church, we can pass on a legacy, and it's not about ourselves anyway. It's about God's kingdom. So forget about the fact you personally are not going to benefit. Here, here's the scripture. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Okay, so there's division of labor, there's specialization. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of the whole body being benefited when each part is willing to contribute his or her skills. And I think the more... Um, uh, that our church as a whole can begin discussing legacy building ideas and catch the vision, the more we'll be motivated to learn from each other, to share it with each other. Okay, one more critical point. Building a godly legacy requires dedication to God. So David says in verse 19, now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. David himself was totally sold out to God, and he encouraged Solomon to be totally sold out to God. Jason mentioned yesterday, if we don't develop worshipers, adorers, uh, homo adorans, right? If we don't develop that in our children, what's going to happen is that even if there was wealth to pass on, eventually this whole thing is going to wither and die on the vine. It can only be as sustained as God and his blessing are at the center of it. And by the way, we shouldn't expect the next generation um, to be faithful to us parents. That, I think that's one mistake that people make. They want loyalty to do things just the way that we did it. Well, there's no room for improvement. There's no room then for synergy and, and uh, multiplication, division of labor, and, and this improvement from generation to generation of the legacy. So. It, we should be satisfied if our kids are sold out to the Lord and they're taking this vision in a, a slightly different direction, but it's because they believe this is an improvement upon, be pleased, be happy. Don't always feel like you've got to have it in your box and within your control. Now, we don't know what success we will achieve in our legacy building, and in a sense it really doesn't matter because that's in God's hands. What is in your hands is a willingness to try. And it's my prayer that this church would be filled with people committed to at least attempting to build a family legacy. And if it's too late for you to do so with your own family, 
at least invest in other families to help them to be able to do so. And may God stir up something great in our midst. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges that it brings. We thank you for the vision that it gives. And I pray that even as the disciples on the road to Emmaus had their hearts burning within them as they heard Jesus discussing those scriptures, Lord, would you put within our hearts your scriptures and make them burn and give within us a vision of what it is that we as a family and as various families can achieve. Uh, Father, may you be glorified. May we be focused on Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith, not focused upon ourselves and our pride. Uh, but Father, may uh, your kingdom, the kingdom of your dear Son, continue to grow and advance through all of the efforts that we make. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.